0: So, if you haven't uh, turned there, you can now. 1 Samuel 17. Um, Again, this is is a magnificent story. How could it not be a magnificent story? It's a story that has to do with with giants and kings and and princesses and uh, victory in battle. All kinds of the things that make stories so, so great. In fact, the story is so wonderful that while... Culturally, we live in a day when it's out of vogue to reference the Bible, really in any sh- way, shape, or form on the, and in, a, in a public kind of setting. Uh, David and Goliath continue to get an exception. Uh, so even this week, I noticed in the Wall Street Journal, uh, there was an article entitled, Lessons from Lithuania's David-Goliath Clash with China. It was an article about some trade conflicts that are going on currently, but there in the July 13th, 2022 issue of the Wall Street Journal, we have David and Goliath. Uh, they're, they're, they're an icon, they're iconic. David and Goliath is seen to be a story about the triumph of the underdog and we love that. It's the, it's the Rudy of the Old Testament and, and, and at first pass it's, it's appealing to us simply because it seems like it's a story that makes us cheer for the small guy and it's a story that can often be applied to our lives of faith in that same way. Uh, so, so the sermons, you may have heard them, uh, they, they can go something like, you know, David trusted God and conquered the giant in his life. You know how the application is going to go. So as you trust in God, you can conquer the giants in your life too. And we hear, uh, we hear the, the story being presented in those kinds of ways. And while we know the Lord does help those who trust in Him, obviously, and while that's certainly a significant element of the story of David and Goliath, all that is here, there, there's something a little more significant that we can meditate on as we study this passage uh, carefully together. There, there's, a, there's a critical point to all this, which doesn't actually leave us as the giant slayers, but shows us how much we need the better giant slayer than David. There's a trajectory to this that we'll, that we'll see, and of course, you know exactly where this is going, but, but let's get right into it. Uh, we, we've got some ground to cover, so here we go. David and Goliath, we'll start in verses 1 to 11, and we'll think about verses 1 to 11 under the word terror. That's what I have here in my notes, terror. Um, so, uh, things start as, as we're readers being dropped into the context of this battle tension Uh, In verses 1 to 7, the the Philistines there, who are uh, one of Israel's most prominent, if not at this time, their most prominent historical enemies, uh, the Philistines have gathered their forces for war, we read, and then we're given a lot of geographical names in verse 1, just to locate the situation for us. Uh, But the region where the army is gathered is finally described by this name, Demim uh, at the end of verse 1. And scholars point out that Ephesadimim is not necessarily a proper city name, but literally it's translated as something like border of bloodshed or the bloody border. Um, and, And it references this geographical line really between the land of Israel and the land where Philistine territory begins. So the Philistines are drawn up on the bloody border against Israel. And on the other side, we have Israel gathered for war against them as well. So they're gathered at this this bloody place of conflict between these two groups. Um, We have the Philistines on one side. Saul and the armies of Israel are on the other. And in the midst of this gathering of forces in verse 4, we're introduced to Goliath. And, And just look. The, the, the narrator's drawing us out just to look at the physical appearance of this, what's called champion here, of this, of this Goliath figure. Look at how he appears. He's, he's nine foot nine inches tall, and then the description that's given here of his armor is longer than any other description of battle garments in the, in the entire Old Testament. Goliath's armor, the narrator wants us to know, is absolutely without parallel. So so verse 5, he's got a bronze helmet, and and interestingly, he has bronze scales. The the word armor isn't actually there in Hebrew. Usually, the word scales and all the other references in the the Old Testament refers to animals here. It refers to Goliath. He's got bronze scales, is how his armor is described. Um, Verse 6, he's got bronze armor on his shins, a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. His, His spear shaft is like a weaver's beam. And then we have the iron point of his spear weighs 15 pounds. And it's interesting that in the Hebrew, it actually reads the iron flame of his spear. The iron flame. So, so the iron tip of his spear, that kind of looks like a flame if you think of the end of a spear. Uh, but, but just to be sure we know how scary this guy is, the, guy, the, the narrator calls the end of Goliath's spear a flame just to punctuate the, uh, I don't know, just the, the, the veracity, the scariness of this character. Um, and in case all that armor isn't enough, he's also got the shield bearer who's walking in front of him holding this full-length shield uh, there protecting, protecting him. So Israel is facing off with, with the Philistine at the border of bloodshed, and, and he is this enormous fighter. He's this huge man, and he is, is the most comprehensive and intimidating, just even based on his military gear alone. He's a formidable opponent. And actually, if you remember from back at the end of chapter 13, because of the Philistine influence and because of their oppressive influence, at the end of 1 Samuel 13, we were told uh, that there weren't blacksmiths in the land of Israel. Remember how Israel had to go, actually, to the Philistines if they ever wanted to have any uh, metal work done whatsoever. And so as a result, the only... Israelite uh, members of the army who had swords and spears and these things were Saul and his son Jonathan. The rest of Israel, the Israelite army, didn't have regular fighting implements because the Philistines had a had a uh, 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 they'd capitalized on the entire on the entire iron and bronze industry. So so the whole thing is even more intimidating just given the fact he actually has weapons and so and they're so mighty. So. Uh, here, here, here we have this guy, intimidating size, all the best weapons, end of the spear might as well have been a flame of fire. And what does Goliath do when he comes out? Well, he does three things. Uh, first of all, he, he yells at the camps of Israel, and he questions their resolve just in general. He, he says to them, why do you come out and line up in battle formation? So you can just hear the, the taunting going on in his voice. You know, you guys look silly. What do you think you're going to do, you servants of Saul? You notice how he throws that out almost as a slur? Maybe Saul isn't known for being quite the brave man he'd like everybody to think he is, but we know Saul, and that's pretty fitting. He's, he is one to be hiding under a tree when his troops are out in battle, and maybe that word has gotten around. Goliath comes, he mocks them. You're just servants of Saul, right? So, so he, comes out, he comes out questioning Israel's general battle moxie as fighters. What, what are you guys thinking coming out to do battle with the Philistines? He mocks them. And then, after questioning their resolve in this way, he issues them this challenge, which is the rest of verses eight and nine, where he says, "Choose one of your men; have him come down against me. If I win, uh, if if he wins, we'll be your slaves. But if you, but if I win, then you'll be you'll be our slaves." Um, and in the ancient Near East, this kind of challenge isn't unheard of. It's actually something scholars refer to as representative warfare. Uh, which is actually fairly logical if you think about it, because if you have two groups coming against each other and the loser is going to be the slave of the winner, well, why not just pit two men against each other and at least that way you won't have bloodied your entire new what group of slaves that you're going to be, that you're going to be capturing. So it's something that's not entirely uncommon in the ancient Near East to do things this way. Goliath issues the challenge. Let's engage in some representative warfare. Um, we'll pick, uh, how about me for the Philistine side? And you guys go ahead and pick somebody too. And then Goliath adds one more thing. Uh, he, he, he not only questions their resolve, he issues them this challenge, but then he defies, he defies Israel. He taunts them directly. Verse 10, we could translate it something like I heap shame on the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight. Very demoralizing a challenge in the whole thing. And in response to this, we're told in verse 11 that King Saul and all Israel lost their courage and were terrified. Now, we're told that, and, and we're not so surprised about Saul, but it is interesting that all Israel lost their courage and were terrified, right? Even Jonathan, presumably, he's nowhere in this narrative. Back in chapter 14, Jonathan had proved himself to be a pretty brave warrior. We were thinking maybe Jonathan's going to be the deliverer Israel need. Maybe he's going to be the guy, but he's not even mentioned in chapter 17. Saul and all Israel, they, they lost their courage, they were terrified. If, again, if we were to get a little more literal, but it gives us a word picture, that, that word that's translated as lost their courage. It's one word in Hebrew that can mean uh, very dismayed or even shattered. So, so they were shattered in their courage and they were, they were totally overwhelmed by fear is what, is what we're told. Total terror. And, and why are they in total terror? Well, among other things, you remember that Saul is their king. They've, they have to date put their hope in this king like the nations who's supposed to be their rescuer. And if anybody ought to go out and fight Goliath, it's Saul because what's true about Saul? He's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. Saul is the biggest guy in Israel. He should be the representative warrior. They've put their hope in him. He's not, he's not giving any kind of indication that he's going to be able to rescue them whatsoever. So they're terrified, and they're terrified because they're looking at Goliath uh, like Samuel was looking at Eliab when everything started with, with David's anointing. Do you remember? They're looking at the outside of who this giant is, and they're saying, there's no way. There's no way we could ever overcome him. He's going to overcome us. We're running away from the battle lines in terror. Just look at his appearance, how how nasty and fierce he is. And so there they are, the people of Israel, even Israel's king in residence. I guess we could call him that, even though David's been anointed. uh, Saul, uh, Jonathan's not even mentioned. There they all are, running away from the battle line in total terror. And we remember what we said a while back about the definition of fear. This is, this is a good picture of it here. Fear occurs, do you remember this, at the intersection of vulnerability and inability? So fear occurs when I know that uh, something, something dangerous might be happening and I can do absolutely nothing about it. And that, and that is exactly what the people of Israel are facing right here. We're in big trouble. Look at this guy, see his height, see his armor. We, we, we have no power to do anything about this. Vulnerability, inability is there and it, and it equals terror for the people of Israel. And we come to the end of this, the, this first set of verses, and we, we, wanted, we want to come to the end of this remembering what Paul tells us about the Old Testament. He actually tells the Corinthians this about the Old Testament. Remember how it was written for our example. And so while David and Goliath is a story that can be uh, used even in a, in a Wall Street Journal article to illustrate some things, we, we are careful with how we make application of these sorts of things but we are called to make application we need to be good readers and say so what is the impact of this for our lives of faith Paul exhorts us to do that in 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 his letter to the Corinthians we know that's true about interpreting our Bible so what do we do with all this here are the people and they're facing this extraordinary giant who has absolutely caused them terror and we think to ourselves there is a point of identification for us here with the people of Israel because we do face, in this life, things that bring us extraordinary terror. Uh, the top ten list of, of things that terrify Americans uh, was, was posted a while back. I, I read it online. Um, and and the, very, the very number one fear that all Americans have is the death of a loved one. Uh, but there are many other things, things like school shootings and terror attacks and, and disease, terminal illness. All of those kinds of things were on the list. And we know, just broadly speaking, in the world that we live in, fear is a very real component for us. And then even at a personal level, we have fears that that tend to haunt us. We fear maybe for our children's future. What will things look like for them? Uh, what will they? What will things end up with uh, like in their life as they grow into maturing adults? What is that going to be for them? Or we fear maybe that doctor's diagnosis. Or we fear um, what the what the future is going to hold in terms of not having a clue how we're going to make it through the next phase or whatever it may be. Fear is a very real part of our life as we go on in the Christian life. Even thinking about that, the days ahead and the things we face, it's very legitimate to say there are giants like Goliath in our life, there are those giants of sin that assail us, there's the giants of anxiety that seem to press us down, there's the giants of depression that can press very realistically upon us, we can feel the pressure of all of those kinds of things, we know what it's like to fear, especially as we look out on those things that assail us, and by all outward appearances, they seem to be way more than we could ever deal with. Way more than we could ever handle. If those things are pressed all the way on me, I know that I'm done. Fear exists because I'm vulnerable and I'm not able to deal with those things. We feel the weight of that as as humanity in general, even as Christian believers. The weight bears down. We can find ourselves in a place of terror. But of course, we're thankful that that's not where we're left. And we see that even as the narrative moves forward. So if you look at verses 12 to 37 next, at least keep an eye on those, we move from that word terror to the, mo- to the word arrival, arrival in verses 12 to 37. Um, so if you look, verse 12 begins with a scene change, and we're, we're with David, and he's back with his aging father, Jesse, and we're told that David's three older brothers are out, out to war with Saul. Um, that seemed to actually be a precedent in Israel, at least for a time, that if you had sons, uh, the oldest, a few of the oldest sons would go and fight, let a few of the youngest stay home. That way, if they all died, the family line would be preserved. So that's why just maybe three of, of his sons are out there. Um, Jesse's three older boys go out. David, being the youngest, stayed back. Um, Jesse had eight sons, we're told. And, and actually, we're told in verse 15 that David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock. So you remember from the last chapter how David had entered Saul's service uh, in order to play music for him, help free him from that uh, from, from that evil spirit that was accosting him from time to time. David had entered Saul's service in a somewhat permanent way, it seemed in the text. However, here circumstances have obviously changed. So so. Uh, David's father Jesse he's aging we're told he's, he's fairly old in this text and Saul he's out to war so as circumstances change now David is finding himself going back and forth between these two spheres of responsibility and in verse 16 uh, we're told that the battle situation uh, which has existed for 40 days now now, if we're just reading our Bible, we can go back and think. Forty days is usually a punctuation mark that God is going to do something kind of amazing. So you can do that for homework. But we just have a little glimpse of hope right there. The battle's been going on for 40 days. Goliath keeps doing this, this threatening thing for 40 days. On the immediate level, there doesn't seem to be much end in sight. This has gone on and on, even though as the as the reader we know that, that's, that's going to be significant. Uh, but it seems like it's going on forever. So Jesse sends David to the battle lines to bring some supplies, to check on his brother's. Uh, to bring his dad back some token that shows the three older boys are okay. Uh, so David goes. Verse 20, he leaves early in the morning, and he makes sure that there's someone to attend the sheep. Now just keep that in your mind. He, he makes sure that the sheep are taken care of. Um, then he leaves early, and he arrives at the camp just as the two armies are going through this, this ritual. So Israel is lined up. Philistines are lined up. In verse 22, David leaves his supplies in the care of somebody. He runs to the battle line. And he finds his brothers, he checks on them, but while he's talking with them, Goliath comes out and goes through his whole mocking routine. And in verse 24, when the Israelite men saw Goliath, what did they do? They retreated, literally, they run back from him, terrified. And then at that point, the narrator pauses to let us in on the reward that Saul has offered for whoever will kill Goliath. So Saul's promised that this person, who if they can kill Goliath, they're going to be very rich. They're going to get the princess. They're going to have his daughter's hand in marriage. And their family is going to be exempt from taxes. All right? That's what's going to happen to them. Which, which gets... Is a helpful answer just to a question that can come at the end of this chapter where we find Saul asking about who David's father is. Some people will say, well, the, narr- the, the there's no consistency in the biblical narrative. One of the reasons for that is you look at 1 Samuel 17. He knows David, and there he is at the end of chapter uh, 17. In 16, he knows him. At the end of 17, he doesn't know him. He's asking who his father is. But we have to remember he's asking who his father is because he gets tax-exempt status. David won. Saul doesn't necessarily know Jesse. They've just sent messages back and forth. So so the connection can be made if we're just good readers. That's an aside. Um, But anyway, David's on this scene. Um, He hears about this reward. You're going to get rich. You get the princess. You get a pass on taxes. I mean, just that one alone. That's good enough. Um, And so David's, in, in verse 26, he says, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace. So removes the shame from Israel and, and, and before David even gets the answer that's been circulating, David follows that, that question up with some, some righteous indignation of his own. So we start to get the picture that David's blood is starting to boil because of Goliath's taunting. And instead of waiting for an answer about the reward, David immediately follows up by asking, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Circumcision, remember, is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So who is this person who's not an Israelite that he should the, defy the armies of the living God? So David's getting angry. Who does this person think he is? He's a worshiper, remember, of dead idols after all. Dagon is Goliath's God. And then the last time Dagon and Yahweh were matched up, Dagon kept falling over with pieces falling off of him. His head fell off. You remember that back in chapter 5? So who does Goliath think he is hurling insults and shaming the armies of the living God? Who does he think he is? David's angry. And the troops answer David about the whole riches and and princess reward situation. You notice they don't say anything about, about the God. We're not going to go there, David, but let me tell you about this princess thing that might might be there for you. And David is, is then, after that, met with total disdain from his brother for asking these questions, Eliab. So Eliab's the oldest brother. Remember, he's the good-looking one that Samuel thought would surely be the king when, when, Jesse's, brothers, or when Jesse's boys are all lined up. Samuel thought it's going to be Eliab. God tells him, oh, man looks on the outside. The Lord looks on the heart. It's not Eliab. He looks great, but he's not going to be the guy. All right. So Eliab, he's angry with David, we're told here. He says, who did you leave those few sheep with? In other words, you had a pretty tiny responsibility, and what did you even do with that? He says, what are you doing here? You have an arrogant heart. You just wanted to see the war. Now, now of course, we know David is being unjustly accused by his brother because the narrator made a very strong point to tell us that before David left, what did he do? He made sure the sheep were attended. So so David is being falsely accused, uh, but his brother is is obviously after him. He's probably jealous that that he wasn't the one anointed secretly as king, right? That's probably what's going on here with Eliab. And David answers the accusation in true brotherly fashion in verse 29. What have I done now? What have I done now? Every little brother's answer. What have I done now? It was just a question, he says. And then David turned and started asking again about this reward for the one who kills Goliath. Now, now now we just need to note, as, as we start going through this there's, that we have to note the christ centered theme that is beginning to develop as we 're going along here, and you probably feel it in the narrative as we 're going. You sense the, the trajectory of all of all that 's taking place because here we find the people of God, the people of Israel, they are in a place of complete in a sense very legitimate terror, they have a very real threat that is opposing them. And here David arrives on the scenes, and what does David do? Well, unlike the people, the fighters of Israel who run away from the battle line, we're told David runs to the battle line, so he runs to that border of bloodshed, and he's, and he's righteously indignant about this shame heaped upon God and His people by their evil foe who's taunting them. And not only that, but as David comes... Um, Upset about the shame that God is enduring in this, in this case by this mocking. Upset about the terror that the people are facing. As David comes, he's despised by the one person who should have recognized who he really was when he showed up on the scene. Remember, Eliab was there for the secret anointing of David when he was made king. Eliab knows who David is. He knows that by God's design through the prophet Samuel, David is the rightful anointed king of Israel. He should have known David for who he was, but what do we find? David is not recognized by Eliab for who he is. Instead, David is despised by him. In fact, he's falsely accused by him. So you start to see a trajectory building here, giving us a picture of of what it's like for God's anointed king. So so all this tension is building, and and as as David is making these inquiries, Saul hears about how David is, is wondering about the reward, and so he's brought to Saul, and David says to Saul, This is so interesting. Just think of the power dynamic here. David, this this 20 or so year old shepherd boy, says to the one who was at least still gripping on to the highest position in Israel as king, David says to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged. Literally, don't let anyone's heart fall. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul says, you can't do it. Dale Ralph Davis says, David actually battles three Goliaths. One is Eliab who says, what in the world do you think you're doing? One is Saul, who says, you can't do it. And one is, is Goliath himself, who says, I'm going to feed you to the wild animals. But here, David's confronted uh, by Saul's own doubt. Uh, who do you think you are? You, you can't, you're just a youth. He's been a warrior since he was young, Goliath has. And so David then proceeds to give some warrior history of his own. And while he hasn't fought in any battles, he has fought bears and lions while protecting his father's sheep, and he's killed them, which is, which is obviously quite something. And he says this Philistine will be just like those beasts. And why is that? Verse thirty six. Well, he has defied the armies of the living God. David's cause is the honor of the Lord and the relief of the terrified hearts of the Lord's people. That's what David is. That's what David is fighting for. And David's boast here is not in his strength as a killer of bears or killer of lions, but he's boasting in the Lord who gives him victory. He goes on to say right here that that the same God who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear is going to rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. So David's not being arrogant, saying, I'm a mighty warrior. I can go out and do this. He's saying, I'm the one who's going out for the glory and honor of God. I'm the one who's going out for the relief of his people who are terrified. And in God's strength, this person is going to be defeated. They're going to be done. He's simply affirming that that this is a battle he's going to win because God is going to help him as he seeks the honor of the Lord and the rescue of his people. So don't let your hearts fail. I'll fight the Philistine. And Saul says, okay. Okay, go fight. Go fight so so this is david appearing on the scene he's 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 running to the battle line not running from the battle line scorned by his brother who should have known david was god's choice for king he's demeaned by saul the unfaithful leader of the people because after all david didn't just he just didn't look the part right but david's fighting anyway So so here's the king who's coming to the rescue. You see this picture that's developing. He's, he's, He's the only one willing to take the responsibility on of defeating this enemy that is otherwise going to crush the people. Jonathan's not even in the picture, which is significant. Because up to this point, we thought maybe Jonathan would be the guy. He was the king's son after all. And Jonathan proved himself to be quite the warrior in chapter 14. But here he's not even present in the narrative. Obviously left out on purpose. There's no question. It won't be Jonathan. Who is the only one who can come and save Israel from this terror? Well, it's, it's God's anointed king. It's King David. And so we just have to we just have to see how this is forming in the sense that when fear is ruling the day, there is only one who ultimately comes to the rescue. There is only one who ultimately uh, brings us to a point of safety. There is only one who can be the answer uh, that that we need, and that's what the narrative is 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 pressing on us. Which then uh, leaves us now in the final scene in verses 38 to 57, where we move from the people's terror. Uh, to David's arrival and now ultimately to David's victory, to David's victory. In verse 38, Saul, uh, if you look there, he fits David out with his own battle gear. After all, people look on the outside, don't they? Right? You've got to have all the right stuff on if you're going to fight. Uh, knowing Saul, he probably had ulterior motives. His plan was probably to take credit. If David did really well in the battle, the people might think it was him out there. Um, if David didn't do well, he could, he could just tell everybody it wasn't him. Uh, But Saul dresses David up, so David looks like what? Well, David looks like a king like the nations. Let's just go out looking like a king's supposed to look when he goes out to fight. But David, uh, is very practical in a sense, isn't he? He says, I can't use this stuff because I'm not used to it. Um, So so he takes it all off. Uh, But it is interesting just to note that David, in this narrative, is constantly running. He's running to the battle. He'll run to Goliath. He's running, running, running. In this scene, he's trying to walk, and he can't do it. Twice it tells us that. He can't walk in this armor. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to fight in untried gear. He's very practical. Instead, he takes, he takes his staff and five smooth stones, grabs his sling, and he heads out to meet Goliath. And in verse 41, he meets him. And uh, Goliath, with his usual routine of making his opponent feel small, he starts in on it. We're told he despises David because he was young and handsome, the text says. So he, so he hates that about David, which means Goliath must be old and ugly, Right? And then he begins by mocking David's weapons, right? Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Then he curses David by his gods, maybe. That's kind of an interesting one in Hebrew. It could be translated that he cursed uh, David's god, or he cursed David by his own gods. You can't tell for sure in Hebrew. Either way, he's cursing David by, by calling for divine demise, whatever's going on there. He mocks David, curses David, and then he promises to kill David Dishonor his his corpse by feeding his body to the beasts of the field. So 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 Goliath goes through this whole routine here, and no doubt Goliath is used to people responding in a certain way to his taunting. Right? To date, today probably ever since Goliath started fighting in bars and back alleys when he was a kid. To date, this has probably been a pretty good strategy. If you're nine foot nine, right? You mock, you curse, you promise to feed corpses to wild animals. If a nine foot nine man talked to me that way, I would definitely not want to fight with him. And that's exactly what the whole army of Israel uh, decided when Goliath spoke like this to him. They ran back to camp terrified. It's hard to blame them. But what does David do? What does God's choice king do when the people of God are threatened in this way? What does David do? Well, he goes toe-to-toe with Goliath, and he actually amps it up a little bit. You notice this? David, uh, Goliath first started by mocking David's weapons. David mocks Goliath's weapons in verse 45. You come at me with sword and spear and javelin. I come to you in the name of Yahweh Shabaoth. I come to you in the name of the Lord of armies. In other words, Goliath, you might have some fancy iron and bronze, but my weapon is that I come to you in the name of the Lord who fights and wins for his people. Which, if you remember anything in school, Goliath, Goliath probably wasn't good in school, but if he would have remembered anything of his history lessons in school, he would know that back in chapter 5, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of armies, is the one who caused his God, Dagon, to fall down with all his parts cut off. Right? So I'm, I'm coming to you in the name of the God who wins, David says. He mocks Goliath's weapons in the name of the Lord. And while while Goliath then had cursed David by his gods or cursed David's God, whichever it is, uh, David doesn't doesn't evoke a divine curse against Goliath. He just clarifies the divine trouble Goliath has really gotten himself into in verse 45. You have defied the God of the ranks of Israel. Right? And remember how David said he'd give or Goliath said he'd give David's flesh to the birds and wild beasts. Well, David, he doesn't even flinch with this. He actually just takes, it, he just takes it up a notch. David promises to strike Goliath down, cut off his head, and not just give Goliath's corpse to the wild beasts, but David's going to give the corpses of the entire Philistine army to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. And why is David going to do this? Why is David out there fighting in this way? Why is he out there with this kind of confidence? Is he out there saying, for the wealth and no taxes and the glory of marrying the princess? Is that why he's out there? No, why does he say? He says, I'm going to do this, verse 46 and 47, so that the world will know that Israel has a God and the whole army will know that it is not by the sword or by the spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. So David here, he's coming in the fighting name, he's coming in the fighting name of God and he's coming for the far-reaching glory of God and for the relief of God's people as they see God for who he really is, the one who fights for them. So that that's it, that's the end of the dialogue. Goliath, again, he's probably not a man of many words, he has one speech, nothing more to say, so he starts to attack David in verse 48. And David, what does David do? He runs. He runs again, and he's not running away like everybody else is doing. He's running uh, toward the battle line to meet Goliath there in verse uh, verse 48, and he takes a stone out, and he slings it, and he hits Goliath on his forehead. The stone sinks into his forehead, and Goliath falls face down to the ground. Uh, He falls face down, which is interesting, just like the idol Dagon did back in chapter 5 when the ark was in the idol's temple. You expect somebody to get hit and fall backwards. Probably his armor is so heavy, he falls forwards, but there's a picture that we're being given there. He falls like his idol falls. And in verse 50, David uh, defeated him with the sling and the stone, We're told he killed him without the sword. And then in verse 51, he kills him again, in a sense, with the sword. So just just to make sure we get the idea that Goliath is dead, David runs over, uh, he's running again, he runs over, grabs Goliath's sword, cuts off his head. Again, just just like Goliath's idol. Dagon fell, head fell off. Goliath falls, head comes off. Right? And in the aftermath, the Philistines, they surprise, surprise, they don't honor their promise to become Israel's slaves. That had been the wager, that representative warfare. They don't honor that. Instead, they flee, but as they flee, they're completely uh, defeated by the armies of Israel. Uh, the bodies were strewn along the road, just as David said would happen. And then uh, some time, some time gets a little weird here because we're showing some, a few different things happen, not necessarily in order, but the, but the narrator gives us a few things. So first of all, David takes Goliath's head to Jerusalem. Now that's going to happen later because we actually find him in Saul's presence in a moment, but, but we're being shown some things in order. So David takes Saul's, or, uh, Goliath's head to Jerusalem, which sounds weird and, and grotesque, except we have to remember that right now Jerusalem is not under Israelite control. It's actually in control, uh, the, their enemies control jerusalem right now and david is god's anointed king nobody knows it yet but he is and we know david is going to set up his royal reign in jerusalem that will be his prerogative and in the ancient near east doing something like david is doing here is akin to putting a group on notice that you're coming for them and so david at some point he takes goliath's head up to jerusalem and says you just so you know just so you know There's not going to be your city for long. i'm coming i'm coming for my city so we have that. We're also told David takes Goliath's weapons to his own tent. Do you remember how, how David's dad wanted a token that, that his boys were okay in the beginning? I, I suppose Goliath's sword would suffice, right? So he takes his, the weapons to his own tent. And then, and then uh, King Saul, we're told about how he's set earlier set about figuring out who David's family was uh, because even though David had been in Saul's court, Saul's only communicated to Jesse by messenger. He wouldn't really know what's going on there. And David's family now is, well, they're totally exempt from taxes as the reward. And so Saul's trying to figure out who's, who, who David's family is. And, and, and eventually David comes into the presence of Saul Abner, brings him to him, and David says, well, I'm the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem of Bethlehem so we we get to the end of this and we find the victory of God's anointed king no no one knows except David's defiant brother no one really knows that David's been anointed as king just yet but he has just proved that he's the one God is with All appearances aside, David is the one God is with to save his people. And what we have in a picture like this is something crucial for recognizing what it really means to be God's king over God's people. And what does it really mean to be God's king over God's people? Well, to be God's king over God's people means that you demonstrate yourself to be powerful enough to set those people free. You demonstrate yourself to be powerful enough to relieve God's people from the stress, from the terror, from the, from the absolute and comprehensive damage and death that's going to be done to them if that king is not present. And in this narrative, David is proving that true about himself. Who's fit to be king in Israel? Who's fit to lead these people? Who's fit to free them and to keep them safe, to, to eliminate terrors? Who's the one? Well, David, God's anointed king, is the one. And we recognize as we go forward from this, as you know, this story is pointing us in a proper direction that is not going to climax in the glories of this story particularly, but is pointing us forward in all its historicity to the glories that will climax in the coming of Jesus Christ himself, even in some of the language that's used here and the imagery that's used here. Because if you think back through this story, it's very strange that Goliath is described as wearing scales. Isn't that weird? It's never used of, of, a, of a person anywhere else in the Old Testament. It's only used of, of animals, right? So David is, or Goliath is this scaly figure. And what happens to this scaly figure? Well, this scaly figure's head is crushed by a son from Bethlehem you see the trajectory of this being said. This is taking us all the way back to Genesis 3, where, there, where there, there's this promise that God makes to Eve that her son will one day come and crush the serpent's head. David is proving himself to be the victory that God's people need. He's given this picture pointing forward to an ultimate victory that we need that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ in His defeat of the evil one and death itself. And in His defeat of the evil one and death itself, Jesus comes first, proving that he is the one capable to bring us the relief he needs. When Jesus appears on the scene, he comes as the servant healer, just as David was presented to us in the last chapter. You remember that. But what does Jesus start doing right away? Well, he addresses, in a sense, the people of God in a context of terror. What's terrifying them? Well, for the widow of Nain, she's terrified because as a widow, her only son has died. And what does Jesus do? He raises her son from the dead. For the woman with the issue of sickness that's gone on for 12 years, what does Jesus do for her? He heals her and he makes her body whole. For the leper, for the blind, what does Jesus come and do? For the demon-possessed man and the garrisons, what does he do? He comes and he brings relief to that which is terrorizing the people of God. He proves himself powerful to save and climactically shows that reality on the cross, which is not by any outward appearance something we think will be potent enough to save anybody. The cross looks like defeat. But if we're not looking on the outside, but if we're looking on the heart, if we're seeing how God is really working in the midst of a situation, not via human sight, but via divine revelation, what God is showing us and telling us and doing, we see that at the cross, though it might look like nothing in that event, everything is happening. And a narrative like this presses us forward to that truth. Jesus is ultimately the one who comes and relieves us from terrors. Even the terrors of that phone call from the doctor, all those terrors that can be listed, they will one day be entirely eliminated because Jesus as the righteous king will return to make everything whole, everything new, all sickness, death, and sorrow will be vanquished forever as he has defeated the final foe of God's people. The evil one is done. And so, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we're secured in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king who brings us the security we need. And the story of David and Goliath, for all else we could say about it, for all else we could look at here, and there's there's so much. I mean, it's worth rereading and rereading again. But for all else that's here, we see this. This is not a story. This is not a story that says if we just have enough faith, we can overcome big things. This is a story that says we, as God's people, are helpless. And we need the king who comes and overcomes on our behalf. That's what David and Goliath is about. And as we think about it in that way, we're renewed, not just in an honest apprehension of our own need, but we're renewed in the bigness of what Christ has come to conquer and achieve for us. And in that way, we're drawn out in trust. We're we're brought to a place of rest. And so we're thankful for this story. Again, it's almost impossible to do it justice, but we're thankful for what's here, and it's worth rereading and and, uh, being encouraged by time and time again. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word this morning, and we ask that we would be renewed in it. We admit our weakness. We admit that there are those things that terrify us, that those things that uh, bring us far from feeling a sense of rest. But Jesus has come, and he is the one who overcomes all of those things. Uh, He overcomes for us and he brings us along uh, to a place of peace and rest ultimately uh, in his eternal presence forever. And we pray that we would be uh, brought to a renewed apprehension of that and be uh, renewed in our worship of you because you're the one who sent the Son from Bethlehem who really achieves victory. And we want to trust in him and we want others to trust in him too. And we ask this in his name. Amen.